Merry Christmas. Welcome to the Colby Cast, episode 79. Thank you for joining us. Today, Hope, Bonnie's sister, steps forward from backstage to join Bonnie, Jordan, and I for this In Between the Years episode. In this episode, we discuss Jordan's new book, Hope's introduction to Colby, the long road to conversion, and the importance of routines. We hope that you'll enjoy listening as much as we enjoyed recording. Happy New Year to all of you. Hi there, I'm Bonnie, liturgical musician, popcorn and podcast fanatic, and Colby homeschooling mom to four lads and lasses of middle and high school age. And this is Stephen, homeschooling father of five and director of development for Colby Academy. And I'm Jordan. As a product of homeschooling, I'm proud to teach Greek and Latin for Colby Online and serve as the Alumni and Public Relations Director. It seems fitting that we would start this by saying, Willkommen. Is that the correct welcome in German? Willkommen. 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 To our Between the Years party they were having here. I think we need to get the full effect though. I think we need the German name for that though, Jordan. Um, Zwischen den Jahren, they say, between the years. Nice. nice. Okay. So we have a special guest for our between the years party. We have a familiar voice to longtime listeners of the Colby cast. My sister, Hope, one of our original co-hosts from the relaunch of the Colby cast. Hi, Hope. Hi, I am so glad to be back with all of you and so glad to finally get to have a conversation with Stephen. Yes, Hope, it's a pleasure to meet you. Great to meet you as well and great to be back with Bonnie and Jordan sharing the mic again. Hope has been off mic but working with us behind the scenes on the podcast um, these past several episodes helping us with editing and show note writing and all kinds of ways. So she's still very much a part of the Colby cast. It's great to have this quartet of folks here to visit for a bit celebrating between Christmas and New Year's and just kind of catching up a little bit since it's been a while since we heard from you, Hope. We also mm-hmm. have some fun stuff to talk about in Jordan's world with the release of his book. It's very exciting. We heard about it in, in episode seven, I think. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. But it's here, Jordan. It's out in the world. It's exciting. Yeah. It's exciting. Congratulations. That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah. It looks great. It's finally here. It's been a long, long process, but um, it shouldn't have been. It, it's it's not that long of a book, but <laughs> I just worked on it here and there, and you know, it was it was the kind of writing that I, that where it just felt like I had to tell a story. So each each uh, chapter is kind of its own thing, just a, a memory that I had, and it doesn't really flow, I guess, in like between years 1980 and 1987 I did it's nothing like that just a collection of memories but nice um anyway I'm, I want people to read it so I'm, I'm glad it's out now I'm so happy for you I'm excited for you these things they just they take how long, however long they need to take right yeah <laughs> and remind me Jordan um I seem to recall something about your students having a hand in the cover art Am I imagining that or yeah, that? yeah, that's that's right. Yeah. So what I did was I um I I ran a contest for the cover art and um let all my students who ever wanted to submit their their work. It was everything from like stick figures to like really high quality stuff. A few really great ones that were hand um like hand drawn and 
few others that were painted of some images I had given them of my childhood home. Um, but this one really stood out to Colby. Like, to, so it's published by Colby Academy Press. So I was running everything by um, the people in the office who were kind of making those decisions. And we all really liked this one that um, a student, Lucy, uh, one of my students, had created. And um, she uh, basically at some point she handed it off to our in-house graphic designer who was able to do a little tweaking with it and, and really make it look sharp on the page. And um, she, so anyway, yeah. So one of, one of the students is the ones who, and, and I couldn't be more proud of that, that, that a student had a hand in it. And she is too. I'm, I'm really glad, even with all the tweaks that came after her original work, she's, she's proud of it too, which makes me very happy. Sure. Really neat. Yeah. Well, I was, I was talking with, um, Stephen at a, another conversation about, uh, well, I was telling him how this book has taken years. There's a part in there where I even talk about, I started it when we were living in a castle, an apartment in a castle in Germany, which wow. feels like a lifetime ago to me now. But it was just when I was able to, to write down a few of these episodes that are in there. And um, so that's really the official beginning. And it's just now coming out. And it's and as I said, it's not that long of a book. Yet when I wrote my doctoral dissertation, which is published now, and it's it's incredibly dense and it's footnoted and all of that, that only took a year. Um, so, and I've changed a lot during that time. Um, so I, I sort of had to say, you know, whatever this book is, it's got to be done now. I want my students to read it. I don't want them to give it to their own children. I want them to read it themselves at some point because it all goes by so fast. And I thought about just a little part towards the end of the book. Uh, so if anyone listening is familiar at all, the the idea of the book is, is I had written it for my students about my own life uh, growing up in the 80s and 90s being homeschooled. And towards the end of the book, as I was I was scanning through it earlier, I, I have this... Um, this line where I say the hologram of our modern lives can be pierced. One only needs the courage to realize that ours is the most human of religions, that God also pierced the veil by becoming fully human. May we each do likewise. And, and it, I started thinking that's really far off from what I was first writing. Cause what I was first writing was like, you know, when I was growing up, we lived in this this little house out in the prairie, and my dad was a Protestant pastor, and then just describing family life. Somehow, in the long process of writing the book, I, I came out to more of a kind of a idea of like exhorting people, modern people, for um, for the faith and to 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 be proud of of. Um, be proud of what we've inherited, but also be ready to go into the future with with all the treasures that we have in our faith. And so I didn't start out at all writing a book like that. Somehow, I don't know how that line crept in. I don't know how it all fits even. And probably my favorite chapter in the whole book is chapter 11 called Things Hidden. And um, there's, there's several more chapters after that, but just in the final order of things that one fell to chapter 11. And I wrote that, I think it was the last chapter that I wrote on the book and it ended up being my favorite. 
and so um, I say all that just to to talk about the whole process of of writing it. There was no real structure. It was just just a tale, really. Just just a series of tales that I tried to string into something, and then I end with this exhortation at the end. Well, just to be contrary, I've been trying to hold myself back from providing any quotes for as long as possible, just because I knew that Jordan would tease me as soon as I came out with one. But hearing Jordan, you describe your book just makes me think so much of Flannery O'Connor's remark that sometimes she didn't know what she thought until she read what she had written. And I've definitely experienced that in my own life. And it sounds like that may have had a hand in your book as well. For sure. Yeah, that, that is a, that is a really, um, really relevant, I guess, approximation of a quote, but, uh, (laughs) so it's coming out. It is, is, I guess I, I, maybe that is the exact quote, but I'm I'm just, uh, anyway, I I do mention quite often how much I love, um, the quotes that hope provides. The only problem is if it comes from a work I haven't read, then I find myself buying it afterwards on Amazon and usually not finding time to read it, but it's worth it just from the quote. So that that is true that a lot of the memories that i wrote about uh i wouldn't have i i'm i'm sure i wouldn't have remembered them ever and they they say that sometimes people who are who are older that are at risk of of dementia and alzheimer's and these kind of diseases they encourage them to write about their lives and I, I think that there are like sort of doors inside your own memories that you 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 don't realize you have access to. So a lot of stuff that I put in here when my siblings or my parents read it, they were like, wow, I hadn't thought of that in years or I forgot about that memory. And I, I didn't put in all the ones they wanted me to because I was sending some of them chapters ahead of time and they, were, they would say, write about this, but it didn't really work that way. It was more like really internal. And so I would say with Flannery O'Connor, I, I didn't know what I thought as far as the whole structure. And I didn't even know what I remembered until it came out. I was amazed sometimes where I was like, wow, I had not thought of that in years. And then when you put it together, one of, I guess one of my major goals in writing it was to make it um, really aesthetically pleasing to the reader. So I was hoping to do that. Just make it look beautiful. The The place that I, where I grew up does not look beautiful to most people. Um, my brother visited there recently, and I, I haven't been there in years, but he, he was like, I, I just, I cannot believe that we grew up there. It's just so dilapidated and all these things. And in my mind, I really valorized it. I left when I was 18 and I never lived there again. And I've been back a couple times, but hardly, hardly at all in all these 20 something years that I've been gone. But in my mind, it exists as this really beautiful place. So that was kind of one of my main goals was I wanted to say that I could write something that was beautiful. And I picked apparently a very ugly place to do it about. (laughs) One of the really interesting things, and I know, Jordan, we've talked about this before, but in our family, we love the Elizabeth Enright books, and you, you go back into a different time, and you, you know, you you really kind of are immersed in this world that's different than what we live in, and 
we've talked at our ta- at our dinner table here. It's just like, will that ever be written again? You know, because I, I don't see it today. So, I mean, I see fantasy novels or science fiction novels or whatever, but I don't see somebody saying, here's what life is like now or 10 years ago or 20 years ago. And so I was so, it was so enjoyable to read the book because that's what it reminded me of. It was this picture of like, I could, I mean, so I grew up around the same time in a different place, but it took me back and it was like, yes, this is the time. And this is, but these are worthwhile universal experiences. Well, okay. Maybe not shooting people with BB guns, but I mean, (laughs) my friends did, we didn't at our house, but my friends did. Uh, you know, but it was the that experience. The, the experiences were universal. So you were telling your story, but it was like the story of everybody who grew up in a place like that, or even if you didn't, to be taken to a place like that, which is again what we experienced with Elizabeth Enright. So I was very encouraged to have that experience of reading your book. I, I really appreciate that because that is something that along the way I realized. I, I wanted to do was the, to really kind of show this. I in the book I call it a little bit nostalgia, like for this time before the internet, sort of thing, um, where we are those of us who grew up maybe even at the the end of the twentieth century, or we were born towards the end of it, but we had our coming of age years during that time. We experienced something that I feel like is closer to how our parents grew up than I personally feel to the generation that are kids now. I don't really pinpoint it exactly, but I do hope that readers will either feel like this is a, if they're readers who didn't experience it, they'll, they'll feel like this, this is very foreign to me. Um, and if it's those of us who did experience it, they'll feel like this is very homey to me. This is something I haven't thought about for a long time. I mean, it's, it's like we used to playing basketball, we'd get thirsty and and just go drink out of the garden hose of the person that lived closest to the basketball court. They they weren't even in the game. It could just be the old man that lives close to the court, you know, and we would go turn their faucet on and share it, all of us drinking out of it as soon as it turned cool, because remember how hot those things were yeah. in the summer? <laughs> but um, now that, I mean, I don't see kids doing that. I mean, they, but maybe there maybe are kids somewhere, but it doesn't, I, I think that that's like a specific memory from a specific era that I was privileged to belong to. And I wanted to sort of paint the picture of, my, as you say, Stephen, like my own individual experience in that era, but it's also anyone who who experienced it can relate. And that was one of the main things that I wanted to to do also. So, I mean, I, I say that the aesthetic beauty and that if, if that was all that I did in, in writing these pages, I would I would be completely satisfied. I, that's what I wanted to do. Sounds very effective. And then coming through all those, all the reminiscences coming through that to uh, arrive at the point that you're speaking of that surprised you that the exhortation to readers, I think that gives it a lot of credibility, like, because you recognize the gift that you've received and, and are able to speak to that. It's that gratitude that was evident when I talked to you about it 
a while back and, and it's it's there again and and that is the kind of thing that's very attractive that I think draws people into the beauty that goes on from there. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you for saying that, Bonnie. That actually that's that's something that I I really appreciate hearing because so much of of the temptation with the book was to sort of pinpoint it in a certain genre or to to try to make it give a certain message that wasn't necessarily what I had been doing for all these years. I mean, starting it years ago, usually if you have a point and you want to say this point, you don't take seven years or whatever to get it out there. So I had approached a few publishers. They wanted me to turn it more into a a conversion story, which I think is great. I mean, I I love, I love reading conversion stories. I, I, reading conversions of others was a huge help to me when I, when I converted to to the Catholic church. Um, But I didn't really want to, to do that, I guess. I I don't know. I had, I had to sort of let it just be what it was. There is one draft probably in existence somewhere on my computer, who knows, that where I went back and I was trying to tell that story throughout. And so I was tailoring different chapters, dropping little hints, those sorts of things. And then, but it just didn't feel organic and it it didn't feel authentic. It felt like it was something really artificial placed onto the book and wasn't what I wanted. So as important as I think that is, if I ever did write a conversion story, it would probably be about St. Paul or somebody else with a way more important one than mine. So Anyway, the book is what it is, and I hope that people would be interested in getting a copy and reading it and getting in touch with me. I don't know how they couldn't. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. I really like what... See, I was the original prompt for the blooper reel because I had so many false starts. Bonnie likes to put all the blame on herself. It's not her. It's me. Um, anyway, <laughs> I really like what you said, Jordan, about how... Your conversion is a piece of the book, but it was not authentic to make it the centerpiece of the of the story of your life because it is more part of a fabric rather than a spotlight. And I think that that's something that I really admire in my Colby education and in a lot of just Colby's approach is that there are various um, Catholic organizations that shall remain nameless to protect the not so innocent um that really push for a testimony or a conversion or what is the one day when you decided that everything changed and and either you've had that or you haven't and it always felt very artificial to me and I remember saying something to a friend about why why are you pushing everybody to have a Saint Paul moment like not not everyone has something so dramatic and that doesn't make it any less um any less important any less profound if it's the slow quiet working grace i mean that's almost that's more um how grace often works is the small quiet voice in the fabric of your life and so i think that that was a really brave and in some ways um if if Catholicism is countercultural, then you are almost like counter counter cultural, <laughs> except that normally with that, you'd have a de- double negative. So you'd be back to the regular culture and that didn't happen. So I'm not sure where I'm going with this, <laughs> but 
I really admire that your story, um, that your book really reflects your experiences and these lessons that you've drawn from your life so far. And it's obvious uh, to anybody who listens to you on the podcast or, or interacts with you through Colby or Magdalene or anything like that, that your conversion is the foundation of a lot of your current approach. And I think that it's better to see how that manifests itself when, as a friend of mine used to say, the your faith is the bookshelf that holds all the books rather than the biggest book on the shelf. See, there you go. Another quote, even though it, <laughs> you know, it's Are you um, keeping a list or something? It, Jordan's holding, the listeners can't start see doing... it, but Jordan's holding a pen right now, and I'm pretty sure he's keeping a list. <laughs> I am. All right. Well, what's interesting is that we're not done. Somehow this idea of the conversion makes it feel like, okay, you've converted and you've switched sides mm-hmm. and it's over, the but it's a, it's a long formation. I'm a little bit in this world of classical education, I'm, I'm like, okay, so we read the great books, but let's, let's create, create our own great books. Like we can, we can write great books too, but formation is a long ongoing thing. Uh, and so when we talk about conversions, we think of it as like, boom, you switch teams. Now you're, you're, you're good. You're on this team. You're on the right team now. So you're good, but it keeps going. I mean, the game is just starting. You might be on the the right team, but you're, you're playing a game. And it, it reminded me, and maybe it's been a while. We have a lot of new listeners and, um, I wonder hope if you might talk about when, uh, you have that story about receiving your first batch of Colby books <laughs> yeah. and uh, how that felt to you, because speaking of a long journey. Oh, right? absolutely. And um, yeah, cause that was almost 15 years ago now, which was a little unbelievable. As, as Everett informed me last time I was on the podcast, you don't have quarterly exams anymore. You have midterms. So I apologize if my <laughs> language is a little dated, but um yeah. But yeah, I guess for new listeners who have joined us recently, first of all, welcome. I'm really glad you're here, and I'm really glad you get to listen to these brilliant people um, host the podcast every week. So I was homeschooled all my life, but we did not start Colby until ninth grade. And I think if our mom and I could change anything about my homeschooling experience, we would have started Colby a lot earlier, but somehow it was meant for our path, you know, kind of just as you were saying, Jordan, the the very long road that we came to Colby for high school after trying a variety of things earlier. And I had no classical background. I couldn't tell you who a single Greek god or goddess was. I um, had gotten used to workbooks from Catholic homeschool um, publishers that everything featured a a nun or a priest. And so it was a big change to get this, get this gigantic box of books that had a variety of stories in them and know, oh, wow, we're embarking on something completely new. So our mom and I laid out all the books on the living room floor, along with the study guides. So there were usually three books the book itself, the study guide, and then the teacher's guide. And we stepped back and we looked at them and we thought, wow, what have we gotten ourselves into? Mm -hmm. (laughs) That was the first 
And certainly not the last time that we thought that. It ended up taking us more than the standard nine months to finish ninth grade because we took our time and really tried to get that foundation of classical education that I hadn't had up through eighth grade. We would work our way through the Iliad a little bit, realize that a lot of the references to mythology I needed to stop and go back and read Duller's Book of Greek Myths or something like that. And along the way, with plenty of frustration, because I was used to a lot of checklists and looking at lesson plans and seeing the amount of time allotted for something and then not meeting all of that time, um, just kind of working through all of my assignments and calling it a day, I couldn't do that with Colby. And there was some small voice in the back of my head recognizing I didn't want to do that with Colby. I would be missing some of the most important lessons that weren't explicitly spelled out in the lesson plans if I tried to phone it in. And I can say that clearly now, looking back, kind of like what you were describing, Jordan, that it definitely took from ninth grade to 11th grade before I could even really start to... Um, put words to that phenomenon, the ideas of breaking down these big works into manageable chunks, of breaking down the weekly lesson plans into daily assignments instead of looking at, oh my gosh, I have 100 pages to read in each of three subjects. How am I going to read 300 pages in a week? And getting stuck there, kind of spinning my wheels, learning how to, how to say, this is the big goal. This is what I'm going to look at today. That was huge. I think the only thing more significant was recognizing the humility of saying, I will not be able to understand everything in this text, but I want to understand at least something. With Colby, learning how to zoom in and out between the forest and the trees, and then also learning how to manage my own expectations of myself where I held myself to a high standard of of getting things done and not saying this is too hard I can't do it but also recognizing I need to put this effort in and it's okay if I don't get everything because there are brilliant people who have been studying these things for years and they're still discovering more layers to these works of the canon I don't know. At this point, I forget your original question. No, that's great. No, I wanted to hear hear your initial encounter with with getting all these books and how to handle them as a fourteen year old. What do you, what do you do? I I love that you won't be able to understand everything, but you you can understand something in it. I think that's an awesome way to approach it because we're all kind of still like that, you know. Unless you're Anthony Esselin reading Dante or something, mm-hmm. but but even he says, you know, all the times he's read it, translated it, there's always something new. You can't exhaust it. And I think that the mistake very often is I should be able to do this. How come I, I can And so you give up. And so I really like your story of like that you keep you kept going through all these things, maybe looking for that one thing in each text or whatever to 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 say you've learned something from it. Yeah. That certainly ties in with the conversion that you were talking about before, because 
I mean, just just like when you, you, oh, I've converted. Now the story's ended. I understand all of Dante and the Iliad. And no, it's not what it is. It's a it's a life. It's a lifelong sort of learning. And, mm -hmm. Yeah. Even the little things like that, you know, like I have a way more, uh, maybe a, I don't know what, what to call it, way more my book, When the Earth Was Flat story about that. Um, like, as you say, I won't be able to understand everything in this text. I remember somebody telling me when you get into like a wrestling match or even a fight with somebody bigger than you, understand you're not going to beat them, but you can hurt them. <laughs> like if all, if all that you do, you hurt them one way, one thing, let make them remember, you know? And so it's sort of in, in a way in my, uh, in my sort of a gangster background, I guess, I don't know. You, it's, it's, it's the same thing as uh, you won't be able to understand everything, but, but you can understand something from it. You're not going to be able to beat up your older brother, but you can make him remember, you know, don't get too close to to my right hand or something you know <laughs> well as a counterpart to your gangster childhood i was a chess tournament kid with glasses for my childhood and i remember being so frustrated sometimes because I, in the assignments of who we would play at these chess tournaments i was almost right in the middle of the pack as far as us chess federation rankings and the type of assignment system that they used meant that I kept being assigned the really good players the like these people are going to go on to be grandmasters at some point and I kept losing to them and I would I felt so frustrated I didn't want to go to tournaments anymore because I knew that I was going to lose and then there I think there was one tournament or something where their school had a conflict and I ended up being one of the higher ranked players and I won some of my games, but my U.S. Chess Federation ranking went down. And then I went to my next tournament, and I played the good, the really good players again, and they beat me again. I think I lost three games, one one, and there was one drop, and my ranking went up. And I said, "What is going on here?" And as it turned out, the USCF had accounted for that in their rankings program, that if you lost to a really highly ranked, really good player, your your ranking would still go up because they recognize that you're going to learn from playing somebody who's so much better than you are. Whereas if you take kind of the route of playing a lot of people who were ranked lower than you were, then that could hurt you because you're not challenging yourself. You're not... Um, you're not developing in your skill. You may be developing bad habits. Yeah. Chess is amazing in those ways. And, and it's not, it's, it's like the whole organization internationally is amazing because I, I didn't play chess growing up, but I've always been fascinated by chess and chess players. And when I went to the Colby offices, you guys will remember uh, Mike Pace, yeah. right? Mike Pace, one of the hall of fame yeah. advisors that was at Colby. And um, he was a, a really good chess player. I, I don't know where he ranks. I don't I don't know uh exactly like what's what's a good ranking or whatever. But according to him, he had a pretty decent ranking for 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 where he was. And I there was a guy, my my kid's godfather in Germany, who was also a chess player that that would um 
he he would teach chess and stuff in the little village there. And so I told Mike Pace when I got to Colby about this guy. And he was able to find him online and see his ranking and everything. And he he was able to definitively tell me that if they played 10 times, he would beat my kid's German godfather like eight oh. out of 10 times. I was oh. like, but how do, they, how do they know that? And he was like, well, it's the rankings and all of that <laughs> stuff. So anyway, like... I, I find that amazing, like that it's pinpointed that precisely that even they know the stronger player, mm-hmm. you play the stronger player, you're going to come up in a way and it goes back to your quote that you invented. I can't understand everything, but I might be able to understand something. So. That's a scary because there is no chance involved. It's yeah. so I don't play it because I want the lucky roll. <laughs> you know, I, do, right, I don't yeah. want to have to put in the work to uh, to be excellent. But there is no chance, which is. I mean, if it's a given. Incredible. It's like why? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm not willing to put in the work myself. So <laughs> I, I, I know somebody's going to outwork me to be better at chess than I am. So it's not much fun. Do you play chess, Bunny, also? or Nope. That was just Hope's thing? I'm not a chess player, no. But I am in very <laughs> much intrigued at what happens in conversion stories after conversion, like how that is sustained or not. So that is going back a little bit, and we don't have to stay there very long. I was just going to throw that out there, that um, it's the living out. It's the long, continual process. You have to work to sustain it and grow in it. And what happens when you don't? Yeah, have- yes. I was going to say, is there such a thing as after conversion? Yeah. yeah, that 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 just hit me tonight when we were talking about it. When I, you know, I'm, I'm like, wow, that's crazy because we are always, at least as a Protestant coming in, Protestants are always thinking, Stephen, maybe, I don't know in your denomination if it was the same thing, but in mine, it was like, when you are saved, once saved, always saved. That's a saying they have, once saved, always saved. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, I found that not to be true since I've become a Catholic. I'm, I'm constantly having to strive more and, and um, face challenges and, and things. And I can't just write it off like, well, I'm saved and whatever, it'll pass. Um, yeah. right. You know, it's, 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 a new, it's a new thing. It's like the liturgical year, of course, because, I mean, we go through the same readings, the same, you know, Advent, Christmas, a little bit of ordinary time, Lent, Easter, more ordinary time every single year. And it's this cycle. So it's, but then each time there's the rise, there's the fall, there's the story. So, I mean, I I think it's the, the work towards realizing it's not all about you, I guess, is probably the thing which is really hard for me, but that no matter how much progress you make, you're just in one of those cycles, essentially, before you realize you're going to have to cycle again. And I I, I was recently reading about like uh, St. John of the Cross and the, the dark night of the soul and things. And I'm not, I mean, boy, do I wish... No, I don't. I'm not ready for that. But um, I wish I were ready for that. But they talk about how you could, you draw closer, but then pride and all of those things kind of start to rise up. But God, who loves you, takes you back and, and kind of reprimands you a little bit and gives you the things that you need to keep moving on to the next the next step. And, you know, Mother Teresa is another example of that, who, you know, 
you think, oh, all of these blessings, all these wonderful things. Well, then God just says, well, okay, just love me because I'm worth being loved. And you get no extra, <laughs> you get no benefits from this. Really. I mean, natural benefits, obviously, but but that's that's incredible. But also, you know, humbling because yeah, you're you're never there. You're it's you're just you might be in Lent at this point where you're kind of dying to yourself, and then you might be in Easter for a while, or or you know, there's just all of these things. But it's gonna it's gonna cycle around again for most of us at least. It's the law of undulation. I think I had mentioned yeah, that on yeah. an early podcast episode. There's a screw tape letter about the law of undulation and the screw tape. The master tempter tells his nephew Wormwood that. One of the best ways to get humans to sin is to try to convince them that things should be static. And if things are undulating, they're doing something wrong. And he said that the universe is built to undulate. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. C.S. Lewis. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that is so true. I mean, it's so clearly true, yet we ignore it all the time because we think we want to be angels, right? <laughs> I mean, but think about when you're tired. Well, for me, think about when I, when I'm tired. How 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 patient am I with my children when I am tired or when I am hungry or mm -hmm. any of the? I mean, it is has such a huge influence. Okay, so I am speaking to myself here, but think about when you don't take care of your those physical things, um, you are putting yourself at a disadvantage to to be able to pursue a life of virtue because you're increasing the passions that, that we are rational animals. We are still animals. We have all of those things working and we're in a fallen state. So um, if you're tired because your muscles aren't strong enough to just carry you about, you're going up and down the stairs or whatever, then you're tired faster than you should be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. It, it makes perfect sense, but uh, yeah. not easy to remember every day. Right. <laughs> It fits, it fits in a lot like routine. I think, I mean, we all know routine is super important, but what you were saying, Stephen, about the, the cycles, like the liturgical calendar, all of that, it's interesting because it's almost like that's a little tiny leftover from the pagan world, which was always the eternal return. Right. So it was always they, they had no idea of like linear history that came in with the incarnation. And now what? Now what are we going to do? Because uh, Jesus interrupted all this idea of these eternal return. So cyclical uh, calendars, it's kind of interesting. I had never thought about it till you were saying that cyclical calendar that, that you can't quite complete each year and you're going to repeat it the next year all of that it's almost like a little bit of the world that was and in general we humans are made that way so routine why, why do we thrive with routines why like it you you know that you do and you know that others do but why why is that so if if you go to the gym at this certain time you wake up at this certain time you do this at another time you you feel happier and your body shows it. I mean, you, you look better, you feel better, all of that. So it's, it's, it's interesting how, how much we still are like animals and a little bit pagans, <laughs> even, you know, <laughs> it, routine, it allows, frees you up for higher things really. Right. Because I mean, if you have to think through every step of the day, 
all of that mental capacity is going to what am I going to eat for breakfast? When am I going to go yeah. up? Where am, what car am I going to drive? Which, where am I going to go? What, but if you just have that routine, it's all freed up for other things. You just, I get up, I eat my breakfast, I do this, I do that. And then, then you can think, you can go through all of that without, you, like you drive a car. You don't, when you start driving a car, everything is, okay, I've got to be careful. I can't brake too hard. You know, I can't accelerate too fast. I have to be careful about how quickly I'm turning. But once you've got that down, you don't think about it. You can, you can be praying. You can be thinking about whatever you want in the car because all of that is ritual. It, well, it's, it's muscle memory and other things as well. But, but routine is the same sort of thing. It frees you to not think about those mundane things. It frees you to think of other higher or or mundane things, <laughs> yeah. other mundane things, you know, yeah. but whatever, what other things. Yeah, that that's so true. I I know, like I've I've talked to you guys privately about my basketball coaching. <laughs> I am exhausted by the end of the game. Yet when I teach a, a Latin class, because I've done it for years and it, it it's routine to me, I could you know I could teach back to back to back to back to I I could keep going and and um, not really feel physically tired or mentally tired. So in that sense, also, that's true, that that the things you really get good at, it kind of frees you up to build on those and and sort of acquire or have the capacity to acquire higher things beyond those. But when it's new to you, it really demands everything and it wears you out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's Stephen Covey who does the seven habits and the eighth habit. We'll talk about that. You say you get extremely fit men. And he'll ask one of them to come up and try to do 20 push-ups on the stage where he's presenting. And they're fit, but they don't do push-ups. So he said they'll struggle to do 20 push-ups on the stage. And yes, they're good at what they're doing, but it's something, even for them, it's something new and that's hard something new is hard even if you've prepped in in different areas so that's 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 good yep it's at some point we should we should have a conversation about the fact that you know not taking for granted the things that we're doing so like me teaching latin and i'm like okay these these kids are here for a reason you know we're praying in latin ahead of time because is it a job in the sense that, you know, a lot of people are out there delivering donuts or doing, doing whatever they do. Um, that, that would be interesting is like this sort of reminding ourselves of why we do what we do. Sounds like it's a wonderful life for for Coley families. Maybe. Yeah. What happens if you're just plucked out, you're no longer there, you know, who's making breakfast, who's taking the kids to, to practice. Jordan is our Clarence. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I love that movie. I hadn't watched it for, like ever, ever. Like I'd only seen the the clip that's on um, Christmas Vacation when she's like, every time a bell rings, and I'm like, what is it from? So I Googled it once, and and it said it's a Wonderful Life, and I read a little bit about it, and then I watched it, and I loved it, and it's become my favorite of the Christmas movies. Yep. 
This has been fun having you back, Hope, getting the quartet together. It's been great to be back. It's a lot of fun. I like this tradition, this between-the-years tradition. I was not familiar with it mm-hmm. until I met you, Jordan, so thank you for that. Yeah, yeah, let's keep it up. We'll do it again. Sounds good. Hope it was nice to have you on here again. I, I hope it's the first of many more to come. Well, thank you for the warm welcome back, and I'll always be around. Thank you, Jordan and Stephen, for all that you do to make this podcast what it is. Thank you. And Hope, thank you for all your work as well behind the scenes. And now I'm so glad to have you back on mic with us. And I really appreciate all of you all. And I'm looking forward to what's yet to come and the conversations that we'll have. So thank you all very much. Thank you. Thank you. If you haven't already, subscribe to the Colby Cast in your favorite podcast app to make sure you don't miss an episode. And we'd love to hear from you. So feel free to email us at podcast at colby.org. Mary, our mother, pray for us. St. Maximilian Colby, pray for us. Ad maiorem Dei Gloriam.